As we begin our time in the Word, I do have a a shocking bit of news to share with you. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Christians fight about stuff, right? How many of you thought I was resigning? (laughs) Just messing with you. Christians, I don't know if you're aware of this, right, if you've lived under a rock, um, Christians fight about stuff all the time. And sometimes, if you look at history, sometimes it's necessary, right? If you think of the Reformation, if you think of Martin Luther and the other reformers, I mean, they essentially went to war against the Catholic Church because they said, look at all the abuse and look at all the, the, like the, the doctrine of who Jesus is and what he's done. It's, not, it's being compromised, and so we need to bring people back to salvation through faith alone, in Christ alone. I think that's a good and necessary conflict, right? Sometimes it just has to happen, but, but if we're honest, much of the time, if not the majority, churches and Christians fight and divide over really silly, inconsequential things. Um, there was a survey that was done in 2015 um, where uh, kind of a, a church historian, statistician, right, wants to, he just asked Uh, in the U.S., what are things that you have seen churches fight about? Like, give me real things that you've seen personally, church conflict. And I've shared some of the results, but I I picked different ones. But here are results from that. So people sent in to Tom Rainer. He's an author and, and pastor and things like that. They said, here are real reasons why our churches either split or had massive fights or debates. So I need to remind you, these are real Uh, A deacon accused another deacon of sending an anonymous letter and decided to settle the matter in the parking lot. Like, can you imagine if we finished and then it was like, you know, blessings, have a great week. Now let's go outside and watch Mark and Bob fist fight about uh, their grievances. Those are just fake names. If your name's Mark or Bob, sorry. Uh, Secondly, a church dispute or whether whether or not to install restroom dividers in the women's restroom which I don't understand how that's a debate. (laughs) There was a business meeting argument about whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. It took two business meetings to resolve this matter. Arguments over what kind of green beans the church should serve. Um, there, uh, There was an argument over who has the authority to buy stamps for the church. There was uh, a church member was chastised because she, she brought vanilla syrup for the coffee bar and she was told that looks too much like liquor, right? Vanilla syrup. Um, some church members left the church because one church member hid the vacuum cleaner from them and it resulted in a major fight and a split. There was a dispute over whether the church should allow people to wear black t-shirts since black is the color of the devil. And there was a fight whether or not we should sing happy birthday each week in the church service. I mean, and you could go online and Google. There's way more examples. And I know that, like, we laugh. Some of these are, like, really silly. Like, really, green beans? We're fighting over green beans? But if you've been in the church for any length of time, you will know that conflict happens. And uh, I don't know if this is comforting, but it is no different than what was going on in Corinth. Um, Paul, if you remember last week, he begins his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, 
by reminding the church who they are. He says, right, you are sanctified in Christ. You're called to be saints. He's just telling them this is true of you. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, you are righteous in God's eyes. So he's reminding them who they are. And yet in our passage today, starting in verse 10 of chapter 1 in 1 Corinthians, I mean, he just goes right at one of the main conflicts that was going on. Uh, There were these divisions happening in the church in Corinth. So three things I want to unpack for us this morning as we look at this text. Um, Number one is that divisions in the church are common, unfortunately. But we want to ask how and why do they happen? Secondly, divisions in the church are often driven by the culture outside of the church. And then thirdly, divisions in the church are mended or fixed by the gospel. So those three things. So if your Bible is open, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll read verses 10 through 17. So Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The reading of God's word. So you'll notice that Paul in verse 10, I mean, he just dives right into the problem, right? He, he greets the Corinthians, he reminds them who they are, and then, and then he says, I, I appeal to you, brothers, that there be no divisions among you. Now, the word appeal, when we hear that, it sounds very intellectual and very proper, right? Like, I'm appealing to you, please do this, and it sounds very legalese and, and things like that. You have to understand, in the Greek language which Paul is writing in, the word appeal literally means to beg for something, right? He's not just writing casually going, uh, if, you, if you wouldn't mind, I appeal to you, please. No, Paul is saying, I am begging you, stop quarreling, right? That's what he's saying. He is pleading with the church, stop all of these divisions. And we're told in verse 11 that Paul had received a report from some of Chloe's people. So clearly there were messengers that, whatever Chloe's people means, right? There were messengers that Chloe sent uh, to, to update Paul. And these messengers told Paul that there was quarreling going on among the brothers and sisters in the church in Corinth. There were divisions happening. They were fighting about things. Um, The word division that Paul uses is schismata, right? And we get our English word schism from. Um, Schismata literally means like a tear in a piece of fabric or a a split in a a rock. Uh, 
it, it also can paint the idea in certain ways it's used of teams being formed, of sides being taken. So Paul is saying, I'm, I'm hearing these reports that there's all of these schisms and tears and rips happening in the church and and uh, you're forming teams around your, yourselves, and there's all these divisions. The word, like, quarreling, right, if, if you look at um, uh, uh, verse 11, that there's quarreling going on, that actually, it, it paints the picture of everyone is holding their own opinion as the only right opinion. We never do that, right? <laughs> that they're quarreling, and that then they begin to detest if anyone else has a different view than them. So they're quarreling about this. Paul's hearing this feedback from these messengers. And so he essentially says three, three things to them. He says that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you and that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, Paul's not saying three different things here. He's, he's actually repeating himself in three different ways to get the point across. The main point that he's saying is stop quarreling. Um, if you have kids, you do this. You, if you're not aware, you repeat yourself multiple times because kids don't listen. And oftentimes, you will change what you say, but you're saying the same thing. So you'll say, for instance, hey, I want you to put the dishes in the dishwasher away. And then you come back and they're still there. And so you say, hey, please empty the dishwasher. And then it's still there, and you say, do the dishes, <laughs> right? You're saying the same thing. You're just saying it in a slightly different way. That's what Paul's doing here. He, he's saying, I want you all to agree. I don't want you to have any divisions. Be united in the same mind and judgment. Essentially, Cor Corinthian church, stop fighting about everything. Uh, Paul is stressing that all of these divisions and factions and teams and quarreling, it just has to stop. So our first point this morning is, unfortunately, um, church conflicts are very common. It's not as if the church in Corinth is an anomaly, right? It's not as if if you read um, about all the other church plants in the, in the first century, that they were all great, that they never fought, that they always agreed, that there was never any conflict, and somehow Corinth is this anomaly, that they're just the bad church. No, that's not true. Every church... If you read the, the New Testament, Paul's constantly writing to all of these churches. Even if you look very early on in Acts chapter 6, right? So the church uh, uh, kind of is born at Pentecost. Thousands of people come to know Jesus. They're baptized. The, the church is, is born. And you would think like, man, this is like the golden age. But like literally, Acts chapter 6, four chapters later, it says this. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint Right? Here it is. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So just pause so you understand. In that day and age, there was no you know, social safety net. There was no CPP and pension and EI and all those things. You just had to take the, ch the church took care of widows. And they would actually have a register of widows who were in their church, and then they would give out daily food. And so this complaint arose up between these two types of people, Hebrews and Hellenists, and some of the Hellenists were going, hey, my mom who's a widow is not getting as much food as your mom who's a widow. That's not fair. And so they come to the apostles and they say, fix this. Right? There's conflict. 
And it says this, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, and we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and that's the last time that ever happened, that the whole church was pleased. (laughs) But notice, like early on, what happens? Conflict. Your mom is getting more food than my mom. That's not fair. And so they had to deal with a schism, with a conflict, with a division. So even in the early church, I mean, just give it enough time and complaints rise up. Um, There was an interesting blog post written by a man named Todd Pruitt, and he was one of those um, church consultants who he would go and visit churches when they were kind of in a crisis. So he had seen hundreds upon hundreds of church conflicts, and his job, which I don't know why anyone would want this job, his job would go in and, and try and fix the conflict. And so he, this guy, Todd Pruitt, had seen hundreds upon hundreds of church conflicts, and so he wrote an article called The Anatomy of a Church Conflict. And I, I actually think you could just title this The Anatomy of a Conflict, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your church, whether it's siblings, whatever it is. So as I read these 10 things that he noticed in all of his church conflicts, I want you to to see if you can notice them in conflicts you've been a part of or even in churches that you've been a part of. So he says, number one, uh, an offense occurs. So, right, uh, Sally does something that hurts Mark's feelings. Again, if you're named Sally or Mark, it's just I picked two random names. So Sally and Mark Something happens. An offense occurs between them. I can't believe that they said that or they did that. Number two, a biased view of the offense is shared with friends. So Sally goes to her friends and she says, you won't believe what Mark did. And she shares one side of the story. And Mark does the same. You won't believe what Sally did. And then they share their biased view of what took place. Number three, friends take up the offense. Sally, I cannot believe that Mark did that to you. Unbelievable. Mark, Sally, oh, I can't believe she's the worst. Number four, sides then begin to form. Team Sally, team Mark. Number five, exaggerated statements are then made. Man, Mark always does stuff like that. Man, Sally never listens. Number six, in the heat of conflict, those involved hear things that were never said and say things they wish they never said. Number seven, past offenses unrelated to the original offense surface. Mark did that to you? Well, guess what? 20 years ago, he did that to Bob. Number eight, people call each other liars. Number nine, those who try to solve the problem are blamed for not following proper procedure and become the new focus of anger. So let's get the pastor involved. And he's not doing what I want him to do. Now I hate the pastor. And then number 10, people get hurt and a dying world has another reason to reject the one who offers life. 
Todd Pruitt, then he ends this article with three kind of summary statements. He said, this process happens in every single conflict I've ever been involved in, hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of conflicts. This 10 steps plays out over and over and over and over. Number two, he says, once you get to number five, exaggerated statements, it's almost impossible to pull up from the nosedive. And number three, he says, Jesus, please come back soon. (laughs) So I need to tell you, I've been in church ministry for uh, over 15 years, and I've grown up my whole life in church, so for 36 years, I have seen that exact trajectory play out dozens upon dozens of times. Just, it just happens. I have, I, have, I have seen it over and over and over. Biased views of the event shared, teams forming, people saying, I, I heard him say that when it, it never happened. Calling each other liars, and then I, unfortunately, have been brought into at stage nine to try and fix it, and I, I have been in instances where then both people in the conflict just turn on you because you're not taking their side. I've seen this over and over and over and over again. I mean, can we just address the elephant in the room? We just lived through two years of fighting about everything related to COVID. Everything. We had Christians disagreeing over whether you should get vaccinated or not. You had Christians fighting over whether you should wear a mask or not. Over is, you know, an online service heretical is meeting in person the thing and on and we just kind of we just fought about everything we just disagreed over everything um i during the 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 two years that we lived through i talked with lots of pastors in our denomination in bc and i just have friends that are our pastors and they all said the same thing they're like we are just in a lose-lose situation. Um, one, one guy said, if I wear a mask to church because I feel like God wants me to honor and submit to the request from the government, I have people saying that I'm not a Christian. I'm bowing the knee to Caesar if I do that. My salvation is in jeopardy. And he says, if, and then if I don't wear a mask, I have half of my church saying that you want everyone to die and you're rebellious and questioning my salvation. 50-50, I mean, up here, it's like 70-30, right? But still, I kid you not, I had those exact same conversations. Andrew, I saw you wearing a mask. You are bowing the knee to Caesar. Are you even a Christian? Resist tyranny. And then I had the other side. I saw you going to the store without a mask. How are you a pastor and you're not respecting authority? If Paul wrote a letter to us, do you know what he'd say? I am pleading with you, stop quarreling. Man, I resonate with with Paul. And so I tell you all this, unfortunately, the reality is, is just because of our nature, church conflicts are just common. They happen all the time. Sometimes over serious things and sometimes over not so serious things. And so Corinth is no different. Paul hears, man, there's all of this, this division and there's all these quarrelings. And 2,000 years later, we're still quarreling and we have divisions. Now, secondly, conflicts in the church are often influenced by the culture outside of the church. So, yes, like, like I mentioned, I mean, we have, we have conflicts about theology and doctrine. 
about, if you actually read church history, like for the first 400 years of church history, they just fought about, okay, the nature of Jesus. How is he uh, human and divine at the same time? The Trinity, how is God three in one? And, and they, they fought over that, and that happens, right? We want to have good doctrine. We want to have good theology, but that's actually not what was going on in Corinth in this text. Paul's not addressing theological disagreements. Let me explain some cultural things that were going on in Corinth to help shed light on what exactly were all these divisions and teams and, and, and quarreling about. Um, one of the main forms of entertainment in the first century, and especially in Corinth, was that you would have what were called sophists. So, Sophia is the word for wisdom, and so you would, have, you would have sophists who were basically professional speakers. Think in our day and age like TED Talks, right? I'm going to come and I'm going to give a talk about some field of study or whatever. Um, that was what they did for entertainment, and you would have professional sophists, professional orators who would come to a town and they would travel, and, and then they would give some type of speech uh, using much good, like great rhetoric and logic and wisdom and humor, and they would basically tickle people's ears and entertain them, and, and you would pay really good money to go see a sophist, go see a really gifted speaker. Like, it was a big deal in that day and age. That's what they did for fun. Like, so-and-so's coming to town? Get your tickets to hear Sosthenes talk for an hour about architecture or whatever, right? They would, they would just go to all of these things. It was like having a favorite band, right? I've seen so-and-so in concert 12 times. And then you would have people who would then begin to form fan clubs around the, you know, Dionysius, he is the best sophist out of all of them. No way, Artemetrius is way better. I heard him in Ephesus once when he was traveling, and now he's coming to Corinth, and he's way better. I have a front row ticket to him. Like, I'm not kidding. That was the cultural value in the ancient world. And in Corinth, you would have your favorite teacher, your favorite sophist, and he is way better than your favorite one. So do you notice what's happening? This is the division that's happening in the church. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. That's, that's Peter. I follow Christ. So what was happening is that the cultural value of eloquent speakers and rhetoric and having your favorite and lifting them up, that cultural value in Corinth was then bleeding into the church. And factions and divisions were beginning to form around four different personalities, right? Some were saying, I follow Paul. Paul's the best, man. Like, I heard him when he first came to Corinth, and he preached the gospel, and he is the best. There's no one better than Paul. And then yet some in the church were saying, no, 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 no. Paul, pff, I follow Apollos. And P Apollos, we know, was a, a traveling, itinerant preacher, and we're told that he was very good. I mean, his rhetorical skills were impressive. Apollos, he was a very good preacher and teacher. And so some were saying, well, Paul's, okay, yeah, he's fine. But have you heard Apollos? I follow Apollos. He's way better than Paul. Some were saying, I follow Peter. I follow Cephas. And, and, and he, hey, did you know that Cephas was one of the original disciples? One of the 12. 
right? So he's way better than Paul. Paul, he's just, he was kind of added in after. Apollos, he, he, Apollos didn't even travel with Jesus for three and a half years. Peter did. I follow Peter. I mean, he's the rock that they build the church on. That's Peter. I follow him. He's way better. And then there's always one who's like, I follow Christ, right? Who's like, I don't follow any human preachers. I only follow Jesus. There's always one. Um, but you have to understand, because we would look at that and go, well, wait, wouldn't we all say we follow Christ? Yeah, totally. But this was not a humble statement of, well, I just want to follow Jesus. This was an attempt for people in the Corinth church to rise above the, the rest. You guys are arguing over human teachers. Well, I'm such an elitist that I don't even listen to human teachers. I only listen to Jesus. So it's very prideful, right? So it would be like, have you heard of the Sermon on the Mount? That's what I listen to. It's way better than Peter and Paul and Apollos. So they're arguing, right? They're, they're acting just like the world in Corinth who argues over their favorite preachers and teachers and sophists. That's happening in the church. So I love Paul's answer. Paul says a bunch of questions. Is Christ divided? Right? He says, guys, is Jesus split into factions and groups and sides and divisions? Like, is, he, is, is Christ divided up? No. He says, was Paul crucified for you? You're lifting up Paul as your favorite. Did I die on a cross for you? No. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And the answer is no. You were baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. And I love that Paul thanks God that he hasn't baptized anyone besides Crispus and Gaius. And then you see like a, a Holy Spirit remembering, oh, yeah, right. Um, I also baptized uh, the household of Stephanus. But he's like, but beyond that, I don't even remember if I baptized anyone else. But he's saying, and I'm so glad. Can you imagine if more people had been baptized by Paul? And then they go, we follow Paul. You follow Paul. Well, I was actually baptized by Paul. Just more divisions would have happened. So you have to understand, Paul's not bashing baptism. He's not saying it's not important. Baptism is important. Who baptized you is not as important. And then in verse 17, uh, Paul says that Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with eloquent words of wisdom, because then the cross is emptied of its power. So Paul is saying, you Corinthians, you're obsessed with ear-tickling speakers who use eloquent language and wisdom. And Paul says, I came to you and I, I preached about a guy that was nailed to a tree. So oftentimes, what this tells us is that oftentimes cultural values that the world holds very dear can actually feed into conflict that takes place in the church. The cultural value of Corinth was let's lift up these eloquent speakers and let's have favorites and let's pick sides. That cultural worldly norm was then bleeding into the church and the Corinthian church was doing exactly what the world was doing. Let's pick sides. Let's have favorites. Let's lift up Apollos over Peter or Paul over Christ or Christ above them. All They, they were acting just like the world acts. So then I began to think, well, what are ways that we do this in our day and age? What are ways that we allow cultural normative things to actually bleed into the church and then we fight over things in the church that the world would fight over? So I thought of two, and I'm, I'm sure you could probably think of more. 
But one of the ways that we, one of the things that we fight about in the church is politics. Like, can you really be a Christian and vote NDP? I'm still not sure about that. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, but we do that, right? Who did you vote for? Not you voted liberal. Don't you know that Christians vote PPC? That's the only way Christians can vote. And we fight about politics in the church. Um, I'll give you a really recent example. We just had a local election where we hired city councilors and a new mayor and other positions. And I received an anonymous letter to our church a couple weeks after just blasting us as Christians that we didn't vote for so-and-so. That that person's a Christian. Don't you know that? Why didn't you invite them to speak in your church and hang up posters and have rallies for this individual? God wanted that person to be the next mayor so that, that the kingdom of God can come in Fort St. John. Are you even Christians if you don't vote for them? Like literally, a letter was sent to me saying that. So we fight about politics. You got to vote one way. That's what the world does. The world fights and bickers and argues about politics. And we lift up our leaders. You don't, you don't like Pierre. You don't like Trudeau. You don't like so-and-so. And then we just bicker. Are you actually a Christian if you vote this way or that way? Uh, we're, we're actually a lot like Corinth, too, is, is, is that we, we lift up our, our favorite Christian preachers. Um, uh, probably about a year ago, uh, on a Sunday morning, a lady came in, and uh, I met her and shook her hand, and, and she told me that there are no good churches or preachers in this town. So I was like, oh, nice to meet you. Thank you. <laughs> Ouch. May I have another? Uh, but she said, I only listen to John MacArthur. He is the only biblically faithful preacher in the world. No one else can preach like him. Right? So we do that even in Christian culture. I follow MacArthur. I follow Piper. I follow E.B. No one has ever said that. That's my last name if you don't know. <laughs> but we do that, right? We lift up. No, there, no one else is a good preacher. No one except for so-and-so. So we even do that, right? We pick our favorites and we say, I'm a follower of so-and-so. So we do that. I mean, we could just go on and on. We argue in the church about the clothing that we wear and what you should look like and how you should dress. We argue over how we should raise our kids. What's the right way to do this and how do you discipline? We argue over homeschool or a public school or Christian school and how can you be a Christian parent and send your kids to public school? And we just fight and we argue over all of the things that the world fights and argues about. So how do we fix it then? Right? We don't want to just leave and go, well, it's inevitable. How do, how do we actually, how do we fix all of this conflict and, and arguing and quarreling? Now, there's, there's obviously practical things that you do right? Like I would say this, if there's an offense between you and someone else, go to that person alone, one-on-one. -on -one. Don't share it as a prayer request in life group. We have to pray for so-and-so because she really offended me. Don't do that. If someone offends you, Matthew 18, you go to that person first, 
We don't gossip or manipulate or bend the truth or exaggerate. And, and you have to realize when you share your side of the offense, that is one side of the offense. And it's biased. Whether you're going, no, I didn't share a biased view. Yes, you did. So there are practical things, right? It's like, okay, I'm going to go to that person one-on-one before it gets out of hand, before, before sides form, before team Andrew and team whatever. No, I'm going to go to them first and say, you've offended me. Let's deal with it. But I would say above all of those like just practical things that we do, the language that Paul uses in our text shows us that divisions in the church are mended by the gospel. Look at the language he says, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? He says later in verse 11 that, that there is quarreling among you, my, my brothers. He ends by going, I was called to preach the gospel, the, cr- the cross of Christ. That's where the, the power is. So why is Paul using language like this? He's saying, right, you guys are brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus is our Lord. I think what Paul's doing is it's this subtle reminder to the Christians in Corinth. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, you are now family. You're not just, yeah, you're a Christian and I'm a Christian. No, you're related. You're brothers and sisters now. Now, in our day and age, the weight of that has lost its meaning because for lots of us, our family doesn't mean a whole lot to us. And we actually, in our culture, we put more value and weight on our friendships with, with people than our, our family relationships, right? If you would ask just an average person, who is the person that's closest to you? Lots of times, it's just your best friend. It's not your mom or your dad or your siblings. Not always, but there is this kind of cultural value put on, not family, but more just friends that you have. But listen, in, our, in that day and age, your family was everything, everything. You lived multiple generations together in the same family. You worked in the same family together. You plowed the same fields with your mom and your dad and your aunt and your uncle and your cousins and your brothers and your sisters. You just lived together. Families would would do battle together. If your clan was fighting another clan, you would fight alongside your dad and your uncle and your brother. Like family was the closest relation. It was everything. And so what Paul is saying is that the reality of the gospel and of what Jesus has done, you have a new family, right? So if you remember the story in the gospels where Jesus is with his disciples and his biological, you know, mother and brothers and sisters are outside and someone comes to Jesus and says, hey, your, your mom and your brothers are outside. What does Jesus say? He looks around at his disciples and he says, these are my mother and my brothers and my sister, So what is Jesus doing? He's not saying, you know, blood doesn't matter, but he's saying there's actually a new reality where your spiritual family is as if, if not more important than your biological family. So this plays into that person that you're in a conflict with, they're your brother. They're your sister. That person that you're quarreling with their Lord is your Lord, right? We have one Lord, it's Jesus. 
Now, this doesn't, this doesn't mean that magically you'll just never be offended by anyone or that, that hurt won't happen. But when your perspective is rooted in the gospel and in the shed blood of Jesus for you and for the person that you're fighting with, I mean, it changes things. It just changes your mindset that you go, no, this is not an enemy. This is a brother or sister in Christ. Jesus is their Lord and he's my Lord. We can figure this out. I mean, Paul uses language all throughout this text to remind us that we're family. We have one Lord. Jesus isn't divided. He was crucified for us. We're all baptized into his name. There's a sense of of unity that comes with that. And when you can just center on the gospel and be reminded of your own sin and your own brokenness, then then it just becomes, I'm not saying it's always easy, but it becomes easier to look at that person that you're in conflict with through the lens of the gospel and go, yes, Jesus died for them as well. Jesus is their Lord. Jesus died for their sins. It it reminds me of the parable in Matthew 18 where Jesus gives this example of a servant who went to a king and he was forgiven. In our day and age, it would be like $8 billion of debt. And then the servant leaves and he goes, sweet, I've been forgiven. And he sees someone that owes him $12,000 and he chokes them out. I can't forgive you. I'm sending you to jail. And the whole point of the parable in Matthew 18, you can read it, is, is that we do this with people. We go, thank you, Jesus, for my forgiveness. And then I turn to someone whom I'm in conflict with and I go, I can't forgive you ever. And it's like, do you realize the weight of sin that you've been forgiven and you won't forgive someone else? So if you're reminded of the gospel often, you go, of course we can work through this conflict. Of course we can reach restoration. Of course I can forgive you. It might take some time, but we can, we can work through it. We don't have to divide over this. And I mean, the beautiful thing is when you get to the end of the Bible in Revelation 7, this is the picture of heaven. And John writes this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Notice where the focus is when you and I will be in eternity forever. Listen, if you're in Christ and that's, you're included in that number, You're not going to care whether the person next to you wore a mask or not. It's inconsequential. You won't care who the person next to you voted for in a municipal election. It is inconsequential to your salvation and your eternity. The focus in heaven is what? It's Jesus So to wrap up, I mean, unfortunately, because we're human, church conflict is just far too ha- common. It just, it just seems to happen. Um, oftentimes, church conflict is rooted in cultural values that we've allowed to, to just bleed into the church. And I really do believe with all my heart that the thing that mends and fixes our conflicts is the gospel. I mean, we're not in Revelation 7 yet. 
And honestly, the longer I've lived, the more I've prayed, like that article, Jesus, can you just come back already? So we're not there yet, right, where, where everyone's focus is only Jesus, but in the meantime, as followers of Jesus, we can actually strive for that kind of unity as we constantly remind ourselves, we are actually a family, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we have one Lord King Jesus. Amen? So let's pray. Um, Jesus, I just, I thank you for your grace. Um, As we study your your word, um, God already, I mean, we've only spent two weeks in Corinthians, and it's like it was written exactly to us. And that is the beauty and the power of your word, that, that Holy Spirit, you, you, I mean, this book is living and active. Spirit of God, you speak to us through this book. Um, God, forgive us, forgive me. When I've allowed cultural values and my own pride and my own preferences to cause conflicts um, in your church, um, Jesus, I just, I repent of that. Um, God, often I have forgotten that um, we are not just people who attend church together, but we are literally a family, uh, brothers and sisters in you, Jesus. Uh, So forgive me when, when I haven't acted like that and I've assumed that people are the enemy and that's just not true. Um, Jesus, the reality is, is that since the church began, there's been conflict and divisions and quarreling, uh, even in Corinth up to our church. And and so, God, I I pray that the gospel would be the thing that, that mends these conflicts, that yes, I mean, we, we would use just practical tools to not escalate conflicts where, where they don't need to go. But above all of that, Jesus, I pray that we wouldn't just be really good conflict managers. I, I pray that we would be gospel-saturated people. When we get into conflicts with people, that we would just remind, that, remind ourselves that my sin that, that Jesus, you literally died for, is so great. And that you are my Lord and that the person I'm fighting with, you're their Lord as well. And that we would set aside the conflict for a minute and just marvel at the gospel that unites us and that saves us. And that then we would go, yes, as brothers and sisters, we can work through this conflict because we have the same Lord. We were baptized in the same name. And we want to just honor that. So Jesus... um, I just pray that you would do a work in us. Um, I know, uh, honestly, I was, I was quite wary about preaching today just because I know that there is still hurt and scars and, and things from what we've lived through the last two years. And yet, God, to just ignore it doesn't fix anything. So I just pray that we, if, if this week we need to go and talk with someone and repent and ask for forgiveness, would we do that? Would we, ob- would we be obedient to your spirit 
telling us what to do. And that God, I mean, our goal when we gather on Sundays should be that we can get a tiny glimpse of Revelation 7. Even just a, even just a sliver of it, that when we come and we worship you, that we're not thinking about what so-and-so did and how they hurt me and how injustice was done, but that our focus would be solely you, Jesus, the lamb who was slain. So God, just do that work in my heart, do that work in all of our hearts, Jesus. And I thank you that you are the one spirit that will do it. And we just ask that you would. And so I just pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.